still makes me anxious to think about that day. I think it was a Wednesday afternoon, fall 2018. We were in our hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, and something sent my 17-year-old into a tailspin. His anxiety and depression had been so bad at that point, it could have been literally anything. And while his dad and I stood at his bedroom door, he picked up a heavy wood frame chair and threw it against the wall so hard that it broke the chair, knocked a hole in the wall, and it fell onto his bed. And then, without hesitating, he picked up his golf clubs, his golf bag, and threw it, and then hurled his Xbox controller in our general direction. The next thing I remember happening was him yelling and screaming and heaving at the freestanding kitchen island with a four-inch thick heart pine top over on its side in the middle of the kitchen floor. My husband and I knew we had a decision to make that day, one we'd been dreading and we'd been putting off and talking about. We had to do something to get him more serious psychiatric help. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. What to do when you know your child needs serious psychiatric intervention. Unfortunately, since 2020, it's even more likely that you need this information. Our kids are suffering. They were before the pandemic, but it is so much worse now. So in this episode, I'll explain the most common options for adolescent treatment programs and services. Why one option might be considered over another, how to choose the specific program or facility, all the things I had no clue about when I started this journey. Stay with me. You're listening to Speaking of Teens, a weekly show to help you better understand and parent your teen or tween. I'm Ann Coleman, and after surviving a couple of difficult years with my teenage son, I decided to make the leap from practicing law into the science of parenting teens and tweens. I want to make sure you have the skills I was sorely lacking. That day certainly wasn't the first time he'd been out of control. He'd knocked holes in every solid wood door in the house, in the walls. He dinged the hardwood floors. But that day was next level. His intensity and desperation was scary. His anxiety and depression had been off the charts for months. He talked of not wanting to be here anymore. He'd acted out in all sorts of scary and risky ways and all attempts at counseling and medication had just simply failed. Just days before, his psychiatrist and the counselor had just thrown up their hands and said there was nothing more they could do, that he needed intensive inpatient help. Not something a parent ever wants to hear. So on that beautiful sunny day in September, my husband and I both walked out of the house leaving him behind to rant and scream at the walls. And through tears, my husband gave me the go-ahead to call 911. We were terrified of what was going to happen next. We didn't want to do it, but we were completely out of options. And we'd learned after taking him to the ER before, when he felt like the world was ending, And they had admitted him that there were particular words and phrases that they looked for. So I now knew that if I called the police and convinced them he was a danger to himself or others, he'd have a much better chance at being admitted, at least in our area. 
a couple of understanding police officers went to the house, talked to him, and walked him outside to a waiting ambulance. They told us he'd be taken to the ER where the staff would evaluate him and decide how to help. In other words, they would determine if he should be placed in an adolescent psychiatric hospital. It was too late to change our minds now, and we both had mixed feelings about taking such a drastic step, but we knew that day that we had no other choice. We had run out of options. Hours later in the ER, once they decided to admit him to a psychiatric hospital, they told us there was not a spot available for him in Greenville, nor in the entire 10-county area of the upstate of South Carolina. Unfortunately, this is the case in most areas of the U.S. and around the world. There's literally a global shortage of both mental health clinicians, like psychiatrists and psychologists, and beds for adolescent psychiatric care. I'll get into this more in a later episode, but just know the situation is truly dire. You likely already realize this if you've tried to make an appointment for your child with a psychiatrist or psychologist and had to wait 6, 9, 18 months or even more. So anyway, after a night in the ER, they sent our son to an adolescent psychiatric hospital in Columbia, South Carolina, an hour and a half away, where he stayed for around five days. While I desperately tried to figure out what residential treatment center he would enter when he was released. I guess you could say I learned how to swim by being thrown in the deep end. Well, today, I hope to save you from that near-drowning experience that I had. I want you to be familiar with the lingo and timelines and the potential roadblocks, all the things you need to know if you ever need to make the decisions I had to make. What if your child needs more than just the typical outpatient counseling can provide? I hope that never happens, but as I learned the hard way, it is better to be prepared and not need it than need it and not be prepared. Let me be clear now. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm an attorney and a mother of a 21-year-old who experienced some major issues with his mental health and substance abuse in his teen years. I've researched it, I've lived it, I've learned a lot, and we not only got through it, but my son is doing really well now. So, let's get to it. How do you even know if your child really needs more than just counseling or therapy with an individual provider? This is probably one of the hardest parts. I think it's so easy to just be in denial, to keep hoping and praying and delaying the inevitable. But I also think we know in our heart when it's time, and it can be pretty obvious. If your kid's not making any progress or they're spiraling out of control after weeks or even months of therapy, then it is time to talk to the counselor and the psychiatrist if they're seeing one. You may even consider getting them evaluated by a psychologist if that's possible. Let these professionals know what's going on at home, at school, and with their friends. If their emotions are out of control, if they're getting in trouble at school, at home, with the police, they're being aggressive or belligerent, doing drugs, whatever it is, tell them your concerns and get their advice. But here's the bottom line. None of these people live with your child. They see them and talk to them for a snippet of time. So even if they haven't recommended more serious help, remember, 
They don't have the advantage of seeing what you see and of knowing your child like you do. If your gut tells you it's time for some intensive help, if you're afraid for them, then it's probably time. On the other hand, your child's clinician or counselor may even suggest before you do that they've done all they can do and that your teen or tween needs more help than they can give. And then again, you may be in the situation where your child is struggling, but they refuse to see a counselor or speak to anyone, or they're suddenly in crisis mode without any warning at all. Regardless of the exact situation, you're going to have to accept a few things. Your child needs more advanced care than they're getting. It's going to be stressful, but it's also going to be a relief that they're getting the help that they need. Your child is probably not going to be very happy about this. Prepare to listen to them, acknowledge their feelings, and let them know you understand how they feel, but that they need more help to get better and to feel better, that you love them more than anything and that you're doing what you can to help them. And keep reminding yourself that you're doing this to ensure your child's safety and well-being and that despite their protests, you have to do it. Hey there, real quick, I want you to know about something that if you're anything like me, an anxious ADHD overthinker, you may really need. It's my free guide, Emotional Awareness Strategies. Being emotionally aware is the key to managing your emotions with your kids or anyone else. Inside, I talk to you about the common thinking traps, being able to differentiate between your emotions, and the importance of mindfulness. If you're a yeller, lecturer, crier, or punisher, you need this guide. The link is at the very bottom of the episode description where you're listening. Back to the show. So what are your options for a higher level of care than just weekly counseling? What does even level of care mean? And what other terms do you need to be familiar with? Well, level of care simply refers to the intensity of the services or the treatment provided to your child. The level of care is meant to match the patient's needs. For example, you would need to hospitalize a kid who's having minor issues with social anxiety. You'd likely send them to a counselor once a week. Likewise, you wouldn't send a kid to weekly counseling who's experiencing so much anxiety that they've refused to leave the house for five days or spend every afternoon in the bathroom crying and throwing up. Generally speaking, basic talk therapy, weekly counseling, group therapy alone, or combined with psychiatric oversight and medication are the lowest levels of care provided by mental health care professionals. Also, before discussing these potential options, a couple of other terms commonly used are inpatient and outpatient. Inpatient simply means somewhere where the patient stays overnight, and outpatient is when you go back and forth for treatment and they stay at home. So let's start with the highest level of care. That's hospitalization, which may mean an adolescent psychiatric unit of a regular hospital or a standalone facility. Now, these separate facilities aren't always associated with your local hospital, and most of them don't even use the term hospital at all. They may be called behavioral health inpatient facility or inpatient psychiatry, and maybe have a name like Smith Center for Behavioral Health. 
But if you Google something like adolescent inpatient psychiatric hospital, these facilities will come up. Just make sure that to have the right place that you look for terms like um, crisis, stabilization, short term, that kind of thing. And if you have time and if you have a cooperative teenager, you could actually call these local centers first and see if they have a bed available. And maybe if they would even allow you to bring them in directly and have them evaluated there. Um, And if they do that and they have a bed available, they could admit them right there on the spot most of the time. But in most situations, the ER of any hospital is probably the safest way. And because spots are so rarely available, it appears to be the best way to make sure your child is cared for and is prioritized for admission. And there are at least three situations that you can't hesitate to get them to the ER or call 911. That's if they're considering talking about or threatening suicide, if they're threatening to hurt you or someone else, And if they're in a state of psychosis, hallucinating, if they're delusional, something like that, you need to get them to the ER immediately. For example, though, in our son's case, he was in a fit of rage. He was being destructive and aggressive. And besides that, it had reached the point where we felt he was going to end up hurting himself, someone else, or going to jail or ruining his life in some way. We couldn't communicate anymore. He was miserable. We were miserable. The outpatient professionals couldn't do anything else. And we felt we had no other choice, even though in that moment, he was not literally threatening to kill himself or hurt us and was not in a state of psychosis. Now, if you can get your child to go to the ER with you, that's great. But if you can't, you need to call 911 tell them the situation and ask for an ambulance or the police if they require that first in your area. And if you see this is possibly on the horizon, then go ahead and ask to speak to a mental health professional, your mental health professional or anybody, um, or maybe the police station or someone who works in the ER and ask them the best way to secure admission to a psychiatric hospital for your child. Now, I'm not giving you mental health or legal advice here, but in my own personal experience, getting the assistance you need may require using the language that clearly indicates that your child is a threat to themselves or others. You may even be able to use those words without ever being more specific than that. I'll also mention again that because of the shortage of beds in these facilities for adolescents, there may be a very long wait for admission. Days or even weeks in some areas of the U.S. is the norm. And even then, they could be sent to stay in a facility miles away from home. This is another good reason to reach out to people in your community in advance of an emergency. Find out about the availability of beds, where they are, how long the wait could be, and what route you should take to secure one for your child. So let me tell you what you should and shouldn't expect from your child's stay. First of all, the hospital is just a Band-Aid. It's a short-term crisis intervention meant to just stabilize your child, check or prescribe their new medication, get them through the crisis, and then discharge them. That's it. A typical stay is anywhere from three to seven days, but they could be there just overnight, or they could be there for a few weeks depending on staff recommendations and 
big one, your insurance provider determining that there's continuing medical necessity for the stay. Insurance is crucial, and that's a whole other episode, but your insurance company is another call you should make as soon as you have any inkling that hospitalization could happen in the near future. Now, while your child is there, again, probably for just a handful of days, they are very unlikely to receive a full-scale psychological evaluation. The facility psychiatrist will meet with them, and they'll do their own clinical evaluation, even if your child is currently seeing another psychiatrist. They'll look at the medication they're on. They may make adjustments or even prescribe new medications. The kids in most facilities attend group therapy or support groups at least, and they may have one-on-one counseling. And if time allows, if they're there long enough, you may receive family counseling. Also know the facility will be secure or locked, and there'll be strict rules about what your kid can have there with them, even what they can wear. For example, they're not allowed to wear anything with strings um, or belts because they could use them to hurt themselves. There'll be rules about when you can talk to them and when you can visit and how long you can stay. It's a lot to wrap your head around. But just remember, all of this is to protect your child and you will have plenty of opportunities to talk to the staff there and have your questions answered. I have some links in the show notes that go more into detail about the hospitalization, like questions you should ask and how you can just deal with it all. That's at neuroagility.com forward slash seven. So probably after a few days, when your child has been deemed stable, they'll be discharged. Again, remember, this is crisis stabilization. It's a short-term solution just to get them over the hump and move them on to a step down or lower level of care where they can continue their treatment. It can feel really rushed, but the staff usually starts talking to you almost immediately upon admission about their discharge and what happens next. A seamless transition to the next step in treatment is critical. Any lag time in between could be really a disaster for you and your child. Now, you may also be coordinating with your child's therapist or other clinicians as well, so you could be receiving all sorts of advice and recommendations for further treatment. And the problem is having the time to weigh your options, get other opinions, and do your research, which is why I think it's important to at least be aware of these issues in advance. So let's look at a few of these lower levels of care your teen might transition to after they're discharged from the hospital. Technically, your child could be discharged with recommendations for any number of lower levels of care, including just weekly counseling or therapy, but that wouldn't be typical. And if the child's therapist was involved in the decision to hospitalize, then they're probably not going to suggest that either. If an adolescent is experiencing major issues with their mental health, like suicidal thinking or a suicide attempt, or they've been diagnosed with a severe mental illness like schizophrenia, or they have an eating disorder or substance use disorder, then most therapists I've spoken to recommend they go directly into a residential treatment center, or for short, RTC, Residential Treatment Center, RTC. An RTC is also an inpatient treatment facility, but it differs from a psychiatric hospital in many ways. An RTC is normally set up more like a residence than a hospital, hence the name. They're often literally in a house. 
Most RTCs offer individual therapy, group therapy, and even experiential therapy for kids like yoga, art, music, and they usually offer family therapy. It's also not necessarily always the case that an adolescent must come directly from a psychiatric hospital to be admitted to an RTC. It's possible to have them admitted without having been hospitalized first, but it can hinge on whether you're using insurance to pay the RTC and whether the RTC is contracted with your insurance company. If you're using insurance, then you'll need to start coordinating between the insurance company and the RTC before you make any solid plans. If the RTC accepts insurance, then they'll have an entire department that can work on this for you and figure out the medical necessity. Insurance is one huge area in which hospitals and RTCs differ. Hospitals almost universally accept insurance, and many, if not the majority, of RTCs don't. The insurance issue alone, though, is really complicated, so I'm not going to get into the weeds here with it today, but if there's enough interest, let me know, and we could discuss it along with maybe the mental health parity laws in a future episode. Let me know what you think. So one of the main issues critics have with RTCs is that, unlike hospitals, there are no federal laws or regulations that govern the programs they operate. They are required to adhere to HIPAA and payer rules if they accept payment from the federal government. But as far as how they operate, who they employ, the rules for how they treat your kids, that's all governed by state law. And these laws couldn't be more diverse. Now, there are national quality programs like the Joint Commission that will accredit an RTC if they meet their standards, but not all of them do. Not all of them even apply to get accreditation, which doesn't mean they can't operate and call themselves an RTC as long as they follow state law. And state law includes licensing by state agency, which would require the RTC to jump through certain hoops. But it's those hoops and the oversight and enforcement provided by these hoops that make it really difficult for parents to fully trust they're choosing the right RTC. And many groups, including the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, have a real problem with this and would like to see all RTCs not only be accredited by the Joint Commission, but to adopt additional standards they published back in 2010. Now, there's no doubt there are many residential treatment centers that are not even accredited by the Joint Commission, so they certainly don't meet ACAP's proposed standards. As a matter of fact, most wilderness programs are not accredited by the Joint Commission, but you'll see various other accreditations on their websites. It's up to you to understand those accreditations and what they really mean. And by the way, a boot camp is not the same as a wilderness program. Many psychologists and counselors endorse wilderness programs, but don't feel the same at all about boot camps. So because it's a little bit of a wild west out there, you have to do your homework. There have been plenty of lawsuits and state and federal investigations launched into RTCs, boot camps, and wilderness programs across the country. The fact is, you can find negative information online about almost any program you look into for your child. Again, do your homework as far in advance as possible. I know it's difficult, but if this thought has crossed your mind and you've made it this far in this episode, then it's probably not too early to do some research. I suggest contacting every mental health professional, school counselor, or pediatrician you know to get recommendations. 
The only thing is, in my experience, most of these folks know very little about specific facilities or programs, but they may be able to put you in touch with another parent or professional that can help. Of course, if you already know someone who's had a child in an RTC or wilderness program, talk to them about their own experience. And here again, we hit the issue of insurance. One of the biggest deciding factors for you may be whether the RTC accepts your insurance. It certainly was for us. Many residential treatment centers don't accept insurance, so it's all self-pay. They'll give you ideas on where to borrow the money, and they'll give you a big bill so you can submit it to your insurance company and try to get reimbursed, but that's about it. There are also some really well-regarded RTCs that do accept insurance. And, by the way, they do not have to be in your state of residence to accept your insurance. My son was in California. We had South Carolina insurance, and that insurance company paid $2,000 a day for his stay. We owed less than $1,500 at the end of two months. So don't assume. Just pick up the phone and find out for sure. Now, not surprisingly, wilderness programs are not even covered by insurance. They generally deny coverage based on the fact that it's experimental or unproven, but there are many people and organizations out there working to change this. Be careful out there Googling all these RTCs and wilderness programs because they can be very predatory in their advertising and they will stalk you like crazy all over the web. If you're going to search, the best place to start, in my opinion, is the website allkindsoftherapy.com. Its founder, Jenny Wilder, was an educational consultant, and she doesn't take any ad money or kickbacks from the residential treatment programs, and she allows you to search and compare them according to different factors like what disorders they treat or whether or not they take insurance. So you can check all this out for sure. And speaking of educational consultants, that may also be an option for you if you can afford it. You may also hear them referred to as therapeutic consultants or behavioral health consultants, They're really just sort of a branch of consultants that used to help parents find the right schools for their kids, like boarding schools and prep schools and colleges. But these guys really just focus on RTCs and other treatment programs and even therapeutic boarding schools. So if you can find an independent consultant, one with no ties or getting any kickbacks from any RTCs or programs, then they can be well worth the money because they work for you to sort through and find the right fit for your teen. They've been to many of these places before and toured them, met the staff, spoken to parents, and they can really be a wealth of knowledge. Again, ask other parents or professionals for a referral for an educational consultant. Now, one thing I can tell you for sure, that if your child goes into an RTC, no matter where they end up, there will be things that will frustrate you, there'll be things he or she despises, and things they get wrong. You just have to stay on top of everyone, educate yourself, and stay in constant communication with the clinicians and the staff. You are still your child's best advocate. Trust your instincts. Not long at all into my son's stay at the RTC, the psychiatrist called me up to tell me she had diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. Now, as far as I understood at the time, she'd met with him maybe twice for 30 minutes at most. He'd been evaluated by an adolescent psychologist and had been seen by two adolescent psychiatrists before ever going to the RTC and had never been diagnosed with bipolar disorder or even suspected to be bipolar. So I was a bit skeptical. 
But then again, I'm not a psychiatrist either. But I got online, of course, and I started reading scientific studies on adolescent bipolar disorder. And I realized there was this one particular scientist who'd been involved in almost all of them. He'd actually written a book on the subject, which has been translated into eight languages. So I read that, and I still wasn't thoroughly convinced about his diagnosis. This fellow was a professor at a very highly regarded university in California, which was an easy drive from where my son was in treatment. So I found his number, and I called this world-famous psychiatrist and begged him for an evaluation. Several weeks later, my son was sitting in his office. Long story short, he does not have bipolar disorder. Now, the point of that story is not to say don't trust RTCs or psychiatrists at RTCs. My point, again, is that you are still going to need to advocate for your son or daughter, even when they are in the care of professionals. Everyone makes mistakes, and everyone can be questioned and challenged if necessary. You just can't take anything for granted. That's all. But even with that misdiagnosis and having him furious at us for most of the time he was there, sending him to that RTC did change everything. He was removed from the kids he was doing bad stuff with. He was removed from the house where we'd been embroiled in stress and anxiety and arguments and all this negativity for so long. He was in California where he'd never been before. We had a wonderful family therapist. He had an individual therapist, a drug counselor, attended group therapy daily, did online school, and he bonded with a bunch of boys with many of the same issues from all over the country. And as much as he claimed to hate it there, when he got back home, which was now Alabama because we moved from South Carolina to Alabama while he was there, he talked about that place all the time. You know how so-and-so from the RTC, he made this great cornbread muffin? Yeah, we did that at the RTC. This guy would do blah, blah, blah. That was two months at the end of 2018, and he's still in touch with some of those guys. So I think the sudden change in scenery and people and the activities was enough to knock him off the course he was on. And then you throw in the therapy and the guidance at the RTC, combined with the new parenting skills we learned through self-study, and it all just coalesced in the right way to lead him to a much healthier place. Thank goodness. I could do an entire episode on residential treatment centers, and probably will in the future, but that should give you a good idea of their place in the continuum of care and what you need to consider and how well you need to do your homework. So let me review so far. If your child is in imminent danger of harming themselves or others or experiencing a severe psychological crisis, a psychiatric hospital or psychiatric unit of a hospital via the ER is the best bet. If they're in crisis, but not to that extent, then you may choose to skip the hospital and have them admitted to an RTC. But there are several other options for lower levels of care that might be an alternative for your teen, even though they're in crisis, If you and your counselor or psychiatrist, whomever you consult with, decide that staying at home would be better for them. The two most common are a partial hospitalization program, or PHP, or an intensive outpatient program, or IOP. If your child does end up in the hospital or an RTC, you will no doubt hear these terms thrown around during their stay. 
because they're both also considered a step-down program or stepping down from inpatient stays at the hospital or RTC. In other words, less intensive, mainly because they're outpatient. A PHP, or the partial hospitalization, is the higher level of care of the two. It's the most intensive. PHP is sometimes referred to as day treatment or therapeutic day program, just depending on the facility offering the program. That's because all these programs aren't necessarily affiliated with a hospital. As a matter of fact, some residential treatment centers offer PHPs and IOPs as well. In a PHP, your child would be at home. It's outpatient, but they would be at the facility all day, which, depending on the facility, is generally around five to seven hours, and they go five days a week. So it's basically like going to school. And school or academics is one thing these programs do address. Some may coordinate with the school, but others could do something like an online program. After COVID, there are many different options, I'm sure. Every PHP is going to be different, but in general, you can also expect medication management, group and individual counseling, experiential activities like art, music, yoga. There may even be parent support groups. A PHP is considered a short-term treatment program, but the actual length of stay spent in the program could be a matter of weeks to several months, depending on the child and their particular needs and progression. Of course, staying in a program is not mandated by anyone, so it's really very much up to the family after getting any recommendations. Some facilities even have various levels of PHP. So all of this is very facility-specific. So again, your homework is crucial to finding the right program for your child. And I'll keep emphasizing that if you're using any program where you're dependent upon insurance benefits, then everything is going to hinge on their decision about medical necessity and whether they'll pay. So always pick up that phone first. And actually, I say pick up the phone because I found that these facilities and programs don't do a very good job of discussing insurance and insurance benefits on their website. If they don't mention insurance at all, though, you can probably bet that they don't accept it. The other most common option for a lower level of care than the hospital or an RTC is the Intensive Outpatient Program, or IOP. You may also hear this referred to as IOT for Intensive Outpatient Treatment. The IOP is considered a step down from the PHP and is obviously also a step down from the hospital or an RTC. Your team may also be a good fit for an IOP if they simply need to step up from traditional weekly therapy or counseling. Often so much is lost between weekly sessions, and an hour a week is not much if your teen is really struggling. They may benefit from ramping up the frequency or the intensity just a bit. There are IOPs for issues like gaming and technology, anxiety, depression, mood disorders, attachment issues, and even for substance use disorder if detox isn't necessary, if they've already been through detox at a higher level of care. IOPs are outpatient, so your kid would be at home, and generally treatment is in the afternoon after school, usually around three hours a day, three days a week. Depending on the program, there could be group, individual and family therapy, support groups, classes like on life and social skills, medication consulting, and even parent support or coaching. And since COVID, many places are still conducting virtual IOPs, so that might be an option as well. 
But here's the problem with PHPs and IOPs. They're pretty easy to find for adults, but not so easy to find for adolescents. They mostly seem to be located in larger cities or metropolitan areas. If you do a Google search, all the ads you see will say they serve your area. But that doesn't mean they're actually in your area. For each listing, over to the right, it'll say, we serve, and then it'll have the name of your town or one near you. But when you go to their individual listing and look at their address, they're likely a state away. This is one of the main reasons we ended up with our son just in weekly counseling after leaving residential treatment. There were absolutely no options for IOP or PHP where we had lived in South Carolina or where we moved in Alabama. If you can afford to somehow make it work financially and logistically, you could rent a place near an IOP or PHP and stay for weeks or months on end. And I've actually known people to do just that. But jobs, other kids, and money make it impossible for most of us. It was certainly not feasible at all for us to do that. But we did pick up and move from South Carolina to Alabama. And we hoped that by doing that and staying away from the memory-triggering environment he'd been in, that he stood a better chance. And as it turns out, it was the right decision. Keep PHPs and IOPs in mind for stepping up from regular weekly therapy or for stepping down from hospitalization or RTCs. Talk to your child's therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist to determine the level of care your child needs. Then talk to them about where you should go. Get input from other parents if you can. Do your homework on your insurance, and if you can't figure something out, let me know. I'm happy to point you in the right direction. Trying to make a decision about whether to put your child in the hospital, residential treatment, or just to bump up from counseling, it can be brutal. And on top of that, trying to figure out which one. It's confusing and it can be completely overwhelming. I get it. But remember why you're doing this. Your child needs you and you're stepping up to the plate. You'll figure it all out if you need to because you're a fabulous mom and your kids mean more to you than anything in the world. And I know you can do it. But please don't go through this alone. Find someone who'll support you, who won't judge or shame you and steer clear of anyone who does judge or shame. Find your own counselor or coach or even an educational consultant, someone who gets it. And you can always reach out to me if you need anything. Speaking of Teens is the official podcast of Neuragility.com, an organization I started to educate other moms and adolescents about emotional intelligence. You can go to Neuragility.com forward slash seven for this episode's show notes with lots of links and resources. Thank you so much for listening. I hope I helped you in some way. And if you have a friend you might think would benefit from hearing this episode, please tell them about it. And do come back for future episodes. New shows drop every Tuesday morning. And if you have an idea for a future show or suggestions for how to improve the podcast, please reach out to me. My email's in the episode description where you're listening. I'd love to hear from you. And you can follow me at Neurogility on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again. See you same time next week.